it was always part of the plan to put a brewery in, but for many years it, it was just a plan. It's 100% acquisition of Green Beacon. No, we had a chat with everybody. Anyone would have seen this coming a mile away. It's the passion and the, the dedication to beer and brewing. Oh, yeah. That's super simple and direct question. It's always fun to get to speak about beer. And thanks to our malt mates at Cry Malt, I'm Matt Kirkegaard, and that's just what we're here to do, talk about beer. And this week, a long-awaited chat with Peter Phillip from Wayward Brewing. Now, Peter is no stranger to readers of Brews News or to listeners of this podcast through his role as chair of the Independent Brewers Association. As an industry-focused publication, this has possibly overshadowed his role as founder of Wayward Brewing Company, one of the earlier breweries to Sydney's inner west. Today, we rectify that and speak to Peter about building a brewery from nomad to powerhouse in just nine years. Peter Philp, welcome to Radio Brews News. Thanks, Matt. Great to be here. Mate, we did speak to you uh, just a couple of months ago now uh, in your role as uh, chair of the IBA, and but today it's very much... Um, uh, you know, in your role as founder of uh, Wayward Brewing, but just as I was reading that out, I, I, I did pause and sort of think, how hard is it to switch between hats um, from head of the industry association, taking every brewery's, um, you know, focus on board, and then going back to your own brewery and thinking, well, these are the troubles that I'm facing in my business that are a little bit unique to uh, to, to others. Well, I think I got involved with the IBA because, you know, as a small brewer, uh, business owner, I had concerns um, and I thought we were able as an association or a group of, of brewers to work together. And, um, and so, you know, it was selfish in one way because, you know, I wanted to make change happen. So I I thought it's no good whinging about things on the sideline, just get involved. And um, yeah, I think that was about five years ago now. You know, and it's a huge commitment. Um, like you, you see both sides uh, when you sit where I sit. I see how much time you have to take out of your own business that, you know, any small business person is thinly spread at the best of times. And same with guys like David Kitchen in Queensland um, that I, I observe very closely. But then when you are fronting the IBA and you're often doing the media, you do hear people sort of saying, oh, look, there's Peter sort of in his wayward shirt again. And I don't think that you get full respect for the, you know, the, the, the opportunity cost involved in your business of being involved in the national association. Yeah, look, it, particularly during COVID, uh, the workload um, was enormous and... You know, I took over from uh, Jamie Cook, and and um, you know he was he was chair during a time when we didn't even have a GM, so that was a real challenge, and, mm. and it was kind of just, I guess, a a fortunate thing that he was taking a step back from day to day management at Stone and Wood at that time, um, which <laughs> I'm definitely not. I'm still <laughs> involved um, very much um day to day and uh you know it's a, owning a small business is a 24-hour uh job but you know i, I guess at, at the other side of it you know owning the business does give me the flexibility to organize my day around what's happening so um it's it is a challenge it does chew up a lot of time it's getting it's getting much much better now that we've got kylie uh on on board our GM, um, our now CEO actually, 
Um, so we've uh, promoted uh, Kylie to CEO because she's doing such an outstanding job. And so that's taking a lot off my uh, off my plate. But she and I still work pretty closely together on all the advocacy and um, and strategic issues. There's a meeting coming up. Uh, the, the, the AGM will be coming up at some stage. Will you be re-nominating or you've uh, done your service? Uh, so I, you know, it's um, a three-year stint. Uh, I was nominated five years ago as a casual um, director. So that was something I did for almost a year. And then I was elected onto the board. Um, and then in the last year of that, I was the chair. And then just because of so much change with COVID going on, um, the rest of the board asked me whether I would stay for another year. So, um, you know, I basically uh, put myself up as a casual director, which is, which is fine. They can, the board can uh, appoint casual directors. And um, so that's the, uh, but that's the end of my term. <laughs> yeah, it, it's of really, we're, we're looking at a, a pretty major expansion at Wayward. So um, that's, it's chewing up a lot of, a lot of my time. And, and that's, that's um, the stuff I was thinking. There's a huge opportunity cost. But we, yeah, we might come back to the expansion. We won't. Uh, we'll, we'll sort of tease everybody with that to find out a little bit more about that because uh, that mm. was certainly news to me. But we might jump into the way back machine to uh, 2012 when you first, because you were a home brewer and started contract brewing back then, or started gypsy brewing back then, or nomad brewing as yeah, the uh, so title is. I, I guess the story is that you know my love of craft beer um, came from living in the UK. And when I was there, it was uh, in the 90s. And like the London um, craft beer scene was really just in its nascence. Um, the, you know, Brewdog existed. Um, but, you know, I'm going back to real original craft beer, which I, I again is the beer you could drink in any pub in a little uh, uh a little town in Devon or something like that, right? Where the brewery or the publican made his own beer, mm. served it in a cask, you know, that's that coming from um, a Canadian lager lout, you know, drinking Moosehead lagers was the most adventurous I got in Canada. <laughs> and when I moved to the UK, I just went, whoa, what is this warm, flat stuff? And it just, it just blew my mind. And then, you know, living in London, it was easy to get over to the continent. So, you know, trying things like saisons and German doppelbachs and. So, how old were you when this was all? When when you're doing all of this? Oh, uh, that was in the late nineties. Okay. Uh, and I've been in Australia for now, yeah, since ninety-seven. So I've been here almost twenty-four years. So. And are you um, willing to date yourself by telling us how old you were and you know how advanced your uh, drinking? Had, had progressed yeah, by I, that stage. I'm in. I'm in my fifties now. So, so okay. Uh, yeah, I've hit that far. You're in. Miles. You're in good company there. Just, just so you know. <laughs> yeah, um, but you know, so you know, just going to Prague and having, um, you know, a dark lager. You know, what? How can it? How can a lager be dark? I mean, so I was as green as you can imagine, and I just hoovered up everything I could possibly uh, drink from the continent or UK and beer tourism and driving around all over Belgium, trying all these crazy beers. And so when I came to Australia, 
um, I was in the UK for five years. And then when I came to Australia, it was like, well, where are all these beers, all these delicious beers that I was drinking every day in the UK and Europe, couldn't get any of them. So um, I didn't, I just went, well, I've got to start making my own beer. So that's when I started home brewing. And then, you know, like many other people, the hobby turned into an obsession. Um, you know, at one point, um, and my wife Yvette would get really pissed off because I'd, you know, take over the kitchen on weekends <laughs> and it'd be an absolute fucking chaos of a mess. And it was always cleaner when I finished, right? Then I started, <laughs> but it was an absolute disaster in the middle of it. And she said, fuck, you've just got to get out. Can you, like, we didn't have a big enough shed I could brew in and, and our house was quite small in Roselle. And, and she's, you just got to get out of the kitchen. And I said, well, the only way I could do that is by starting my own brewery. You know? Then I could have my own space. And she's like, whatever, just get out of the kitchen. So that was, that was kind of like um, when the wife gives you permission to go and start a brewery, you know, you note that down and <laughs> take a picture and get her to sign it. So um, so we, um, we were kind of running out of space in that house. So we decided we were going to, uh, move and look for, look for something bigger. We rented a, a place in Lilyfield for a while. It had a, a garage was, was my must haves in the, um, when we were renting and looking for a house. So, um, and that's where we started wayward. So wayward was literally started in a garage, um, in Lilyfield and I, you know, um, she once told the story about how somebody showed up on the, on the, on the doorstep saying, can we buy some beer? And she's like, oh, no, it's just, we're gypsy brewers. <laughs> just before we go into the process of gypsy brewing, because as I look at your LinkedIn profile, you, uh, you know, you, you, you've worked um, for Oracle um, in the UK, but then you worked as CEO for Investment Link and Super Choice Services, um, and you're a managing director of Super Choice um, yeah, before before you uh, obviously went um, full into Wayward, that immediately raises questions about what your investment advice was uh, like. If you saw <laughs> opening a brewery as a uh, as a way to make money, or was this an antidote to uh, to your, your high finance world? Well, I don't know if it was sensible uh, sensible investment um, advice or. or or ideas, you know, that, that old saying, um, how to make a small fortune is start with a big fortune and start a brewery, right? Yes. Um, uh, but yeah, so I, I, by my background, I'm actually a bit of a computer nerd. Um, so I, I owned a bit of a serial entrepreneur around companies in Canada before I left for the UK. In the UK, I worked for, worked for Oracle, as you said. Um, and then when I came to Australia, I, I was looking for a technology job and, um, and found um, a job in a technology company that was developing software for the superannuation industry. So although we worked in the superannuation industry, I really don't know much about investing. And, oh, um, right. Okay. Yeah, so it's more, it's more about moving the money around and moving the data around in the super industry. But, you know, that was a, that was a very good business um, that uh, was involved with for about 15 years and still, um, still a shareholder of it. Um, but yeah, w- when it came to a point where my obsession was getting to that point where I just felt like oh, I've just got to shit or get off the pot. Right. <laughs> uh, so was actively looking for 
space. Um, when I was gypsy brewing, uh, I was still, I think I'd stepped down as CEO at that point. Uh, and one of the, I had a non-executive director that uh, made a mine who um, stepped up into that role. Uh, and then, you know, I was, uh, I was doing the, the part-time gig while we were getting the brewery. But once, once we found the location in Camperdown, then it was, I was all in. What was it? That makes a little bit more sense that if you weren't on the investment side, because I don't think a numbers person would have uh, ever sat down and gone, I could make money out of brewing. But coming from an IT background, that seems to have fueled a lot of our uh, home successful home brewing startups. Um, you know, there's yeah. something about coding or something about computers that drives people to drink or gives them a love of making it. I don't know what it is, but it, there is definitely, you know, I, I've got so many friends in the industry that have come from um, from a computer background. We were talking about Dave Patton, you know, he and I were best mates when we were both working in financial services and would get together at Hearts Pub on, on uh, you know, two or three uh, times a week and drink some good beer and have some chicken wings and talk about starting breweries. And, uh, <laughs> and um, yeah, so we were, we were both obsessed along a similar, uh, a similar line. But yeah, there's a lot of lot of people who have come from that. You know, Microsoft is another one, and um, yeah. You, you didn't ever think of teaming up because that would have been a fairly spectacular powerhouse. Uh, you and Dave working together. It's um, you know, so this is probably a bit of history that not many people know. We actually seriously talked about it probably three times, and um, I mean the first. <laughs> Here's another, here's another funny story. Um, basically I was being in the financial services industry. Some of my customers were in Melbourne. So, um, I heard that, um, Mountain Goat were selling their old brew house. So I called up Dave from Mountain Goat and said, oh mate, I'll come down. I've got a, I've got a business trip. So I'll come and visit you. And Patton said, oh, I'll come down with you. I need to come down as well. And uh, I'd love to have a look at this. So we, we both looked at this. I had a place um, that we were looking at leasing in Roselle. It would have been a terrible location for a brewery. It was tiny. It was, it was really, really, it, but you know, you start getting desperate and looking at, at what you can do in any sort of space. Um, I think it was only like 200 square meters. And, um, and so, I, but I was keen on buying the, the old mountain goat brew house. And then the lease fell through on this place. And Dave said, oh, I think I found a lease. Do you, do you um, mind if I buy it? And so he bought it. And I think I dodged a bullet there, to be honest. <laughs> it was a pretty, pretty shitty piece of kit. But, uh, you know, Dave, um, Dave pumped out loads of great beers out of that brew house. So it just goes to show you ingenuity is the mother of invention. We can always make it easier, though make it easier to make good beer can't we exactly yeah <laughs> there's a hard way and an easy way and that brew house was absolutely the hard way but yeah we uh we talked about it then and then uh before uh dave started akasha um we very very briefly uh revisited the idea um i i, I think that the what it came down to is that um both dave and i are control freaks Right. And um, <laughs> we have enormous respect for each other and uh, we love what each other does. But, you know, it's really hard to have um, two captains to a ship. 
and when you have two in, two very very strong-willed individuals, um, it's either a recipe for disaster or a recipe for um, success. But yeah, I, I think it, we could have made it work, but um, ultimately, I'm you know very happy being a benevolent dictator <laughs> in, in, my, in my business, and and my staff call me that, so it's okay. Now, when you um when you did launch Wayward um, back in 2012, um, I believe it was, I, I believe you you uh, visited brewed in just about every uh, Sydney brewery. What did you learn from that process and what did that teach you when you opened your own, when you went looking for your own space and opened your own space? Mm, good question. Um, look, I think when you, um, you know, going from a home brewer to big kit, right, um, is uh, a shock and a surprise you know and as a gypsy brewer you really don't get the experience that that you do when you're brewing day-to-day on your own brewery kit right so i guess i had an opportunity to observe a lot of good brewers um you know people like sean right when we were when we were brewing at uh illawarra yep um i pretty much although i did a couple brews with asher i think it was it was pretty much all brewing with Sean and um, you know, I got to observe how that brew kit worked and, you know, talk to him about what worked, what didn't work. Um, So I think when we designed our brewery, I pretty much knew what I wanted and Sean certainly also knew what he wanted. So we collaboratively designed that and um, I'm a bit of a closet engineer. So, you know, I love nothing more than getting into the detail of, of these things and really trying to trying to design the optimal piece of kit. I mean, when, when we when I went over to China to um, to look for a brewery equipment suppliers, um, you know, I saw stuff that, um, you know, I wouldn't make dog food in, let alone in beer. <laughs> Um, and I just saw lots and lots of different ways to do it. We put some innovations into our brew kit that I, I haven't seen in many other ones. Like, for instance, our our whirlpool is actually jacketed, so we can chill in our whirlpool, um, which is kind of an old homebrew trick, right? It's like you you um, whirlpool your 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 work um, and uh, and put an immersion chiller in to chill it at the same time, which stops the um your dry hops that you're or sorry your whirlpool hops that you're putting into the whirlpool from um volatizing so little innovations like that that have been responsible for um creating some interesting brews at wayward so um yeah so i think answer the question it was it was fun brewing at all the different breweries and figuring out what we wanted having a having an opportunity to play around it's amazing to say that you know in, in 2021 that you know 2012 was you know dog years ago in terms of the Australian brewing scene and particularly when you look at how potentially crowded um, the Sydney Sydney's inner west is or certainly how Not potentially, Not potentially. <laughs> well it, it depends on who you ask. That's the thing. You know, the, the, the first people come in and say it's crowded. The more recent people will say, oh, look, you look how many people are enjoying it. It's a vibrant place. There's always room for one more if we, you know, the rising tide lifts all boats. But 
we'll call it Sydney's in the West for now. You know, when you look at the clearer um, path that you had uh, in, in, into the area, um, coming up with that homebrew um, phase, uh, Nomad Brewer opening a venue, did you have more luxury of starting small and experimenting and growing than if you lobbed into Sydney's in the West today with the same business plan? Yeah, I... I think so. I mean, I thought we were late. We were, um, you know, I had already been planning on this for two years before we opened. So um, it was, I was getting very, very nervous that, oh my God, we're, we're, we're missing the boat on this. I think we were the 10th brewery in Greater Sydney, right? And I don't know, I didn't even know what the numbers are now. What would it be? 50 something like that i'll have to consult our database it's going to be launched very soon yeah um so it was i thought we were late to the game um you know we were desperate to to um find somewhere that we could that met our criteria we looked at we had four leases that fell through just because of um landlords that didn't understand brewing uh couldn't get you know councils that didn't understand brewing just so many false starts that when we found Camperdown, we, we, you know, I guess it was, um, I guess it was fate that we wouldn't, um, get, st- get set up before then. Um, cause we were looking at, we looked at a place that literally, um, right across the forecourt from White Bay. Okay. Uh, and, and again, that would have been a nightmare of a site cause it was too small as well. Um, so, Guess answering the question, yeah, I guess you know the market wasn't as well developed back back then. So the rising tide has lifted all boats, and so that's a bigger market. So there's more opportunity. Is that continuing to happen now, or are you finding that, particularly in regional, like for for a brewery that has a tap room in a regional area, that can there be a saturation point or a, where it becomes too big? I really like the regional model. Right. I mean, in terms of, of uh, sustainability of growth, I think that's where the sustainability comes from. For new brewers, you mean? So for new, for new yeah. brewers, yeah. You know, it's like anybody who comes to see me, um, I say, you know, why don't you be the big fish in a small pond, right? Go and buy the old pub that's got a license. Um, you can you can set up a brewery in the shed at the back. You can you can brew the beer, right? Cause that's, that's the other irony of starting a brewery is I started a brewery because I loved brewing and I haven't, you know, I, the, I, I actually did two brews when I was on holiday in Tasmania last month, <laughs> uh, maybe two months ago, just before lockdown. Uh, and I hadn't been on the tools for three years at Wayward. So, you know, I started a brewery because I love brewing and I don't brew because you still home brew or it's too much no, taking your work no. home. No, uh, again, my wife would kill me if I, if I messed up the kitchen. Um, but I keep threatening the the boys that I'll do uh, do something on the pilot batch. Actually, I have I have a recipe written that I'm going to do, and um, and you know I did a, a brew with Will at Van Diemen, um, and uh, one with uh, Scotto at um, Hobart Brewing Company. So that was really fun getting back on the tools, um, and. Uh, doing a couple of brews. So it, it, 
reinvigorated me and I'll do, I'll start doing some more small brews. Uh, I, I'm interested that you said you felt you'd missed the time um, when, when you opened, you know, nine years ago because you've been planning for a while. I guess you were then in that sweet spot when the pioneers had, for want of a better word, ploughed the field a little bit, but it hadn't been really crowded. So there was that growth that an area could have, um, I would hesitate to ever say easily, but more easily than perhaps now. Um, Because I get the feeling that growth generally is a little bit harder. Um, You know, that maybe there's only a set percentage of the entire market that wants to drink craft beer, for example. And, you know, we need to start looking at new places, like you said, the regional areas. Is I mean, do you think that your area is still growing in terms of potential new consumers? Um, I don't I don't really know how to answer that question because I think that the inner west is undoubtedly, you know, punching above its weight in terms of um, market share in Australia, right? So, I mean, various, uh, I mean, IBA pegs our um, industry market share at about uh, 8.2 last year. So it's, it's going to have grown a bit. So let's call it nine. Um, or approaching nine. Um, but I would say that the inner West is a multiple of that, right? So people in the inner West, it's a bit like how in Portland, Oregon, it's a microcosm or it's a little microclimate for the beer industry. And it's like something like 60% of the beer drunk in Portland is independent. Mm-hmm. So it's an, it's an amazing little microcosm. So I think the inner West is kind of like that. I don't know how, how, whether it can continue to grow. I think that including breweries and planning that haven't opened yet, but have actually got spaces, I think we're up to 12 in Maryville, right? Which is just like, that's higher density than Portland, right? If you look at it on a per capita basis. So is it possible to, I guess it's, I guess it's possible, but I do know it's getting much more competitive out there. Um, we're a little bit out of the Merrickville Triangle, so people coming to us need to seek us out, and we're a destination, I guess, um, like us and White Bay. Um, you know, so the, there is that black hole of of Merrickville that really draws people in. It's it's a gravitational pull. Mm. Um, and but I, but it is getting much more comp, much more competitive. Um, you've got to really have um, a full service offering to really get people interested. And then uh, the the on prem is you know brutally brutally competitive um, to the point where uh, you know it's it's almost a waste of time spending time on on-prem just because there's so many good breweries around that you're fighting against for mm. such sparse amounts of taps that even if your beer sells great, um, you know you're going to get rotated out next uh, next week when the kegs are gone. And um, yeah, so that that's off-prem. Um you know, you only need now to look at the shelf space competition um, in bottle shops to see, wow, there's, 
like there's not much more room for bottle shops to expand because they're running out of fridge space. Mm. Right. And I, as I've, I'm not sure whether you catch the podcast, um, but I've talked a little bit just looking at BWS that this time last year, my local one, this time last year, it was all local lover and they ranged a selection of them and they look like they've got their data um, from that. And there seems to have been a bit of a culling and the biggest competition for shelf space is from Endeavor's own brands, um, it, it, it looks like. So even that looks like it's going to be a very tough market uh, longer term. It's not going to get any easier, put it that way, right? Everything's going to continue to get much more um, competitive. So, And that's why I say to anybody who's thinking about starting a brewery, man, be a, be a big fish in a small pond. It's a, it's a beautiful business model where essentially you're selling all the beer that you make um, 20 metres from where you make it, right? And that's... That would that's be quite a, scary, I'd imagine. Again, in going back to, you know, for, for some of the areas that don't yet have breweries, um, when, you, when you look at them, and I, I do a lot of tasting well, before COVID, used to do a lot of tastings out in regional centres, and I'd still go out with the same enthusiasm of being an advocate and convincing people. And... Uh, you know, there's always a handful that are really interested in it because I've tried it before. Then there's the ones who are willing to try it. Um, and then, you know, once you get out of that 15% of people who are in you know, varying degrees of enthusiasm, then you start hitting the great mass of people who, oh, right, this doesn't taste like, oh, this is too fruity or this is this or this is mm-hmm. that. And mm-hmm. you, you've got a much harder sell. Um, too much flavour. Too yeah. much flavour. Yeah. And that's and, and again, like I, I think we've hit a lot of that in the um, inner city areas uh, in, in terms of growth. But it, it would be scary for anyone wanting to invest to know that not only do they have to get their business started, but they also have to create their own markets in the way that Mountain Goat or you know the early yeah. the, the pioneers did. Um, you know, but, but it's, that's why it's important to know your market, right? Because mm. uh, and I've spoken to. A, you know, when, when we had uh, Good Beer Week and we had um, the Trade Hub, I spoke to a lot of young brewers that are starting in regional areas. And, you know, their most popular beer is basically um, uh, an Australian light lager. Yep. Right. And so know your market. Uh, I firmly believe there's an independent beer for everyone, but there's not a craft beer for everyone. Right. So, you know, it's an important distinction that, independent beer is not necessarily quote-unquote craft right because the word craft beer um turns some consumers off because they think oh you know it's going to be like homebrew or it's going to be too flavorful or fruity or flowery or whatever right they they've got a built-in they tried one once and they didn't like it and they went back to Tui's new and you know bless their cotton socks that's what that's what they like so you know don't fight don't fight the tide, right? If that's what your customers want, because because once you've got somebody inside your brew pub that's drinking your, you know, Resh's clone, right? Uh, and they and then, you know, somebody goes to the goes to the bar and buys them a you know a light pale ale, you know, they might go, oh, you know, the typical res- response is, oh, that's not half bad, you know, oh, thanks very much, <laughs> you know. That's a, a, a great compliment. You know, it's like, oh, it's not bad. Um, and that's the way you convert people to more adventurous beers is by giving them, a, you know, a wedge or a ramp. Or But do we need to convert people to more adventurous beers? 
You did because no. that, that, that's uh, I, I guess the no, big not question. Necessi- not 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 necessarily. That's that's it. I mean, if um, there is some amazing independent beers out there that are light Australian lagers, right? And they don't need to be anything else. Um, as long as those businesses, those businesses are independent, then all of those benefits of independence are happening, right? We're keeping um, keeping money in Australia. We're buying Australian. We're supporting Australian jobs. All those sorts of things. Right. So that's you know I'm passionate about um, independence and Australian made and and independent beer um, for all of those all of those reasons, because I just don't think we should have an industry that's dominated by foreign multinationals. I mean, there's a whole lot there that could possibly be an IBA um, presentation as well, but I'm, I'm just fascinated because I've been to the point that people have actually started quoting it back at me or rolling their eyes when I say it, talking about that we're in a post-craft world um, these days. If you go back 20 years, it was that we're making beers that are different to the only beers you can get you know when you could only get a monoculture type of lager in various formats and various brands that's where the craft beer moniker pointed out something different actually i was interviewed on abc radio last night about it because they wanted to know what it was and i said well i i think craft has actually outlived its usefulness because it's not a you know the, the big brewers have lifted their offering and you know you can get a, an amazing array of beers exclusively from big brewers and the conversation has moved to other elements of or other attributes of brewing about you know do you want to have a brewery that's local to you do you want to have a brewery that you know the people and uh, you know they're the sort of conversation so I was, I was very interested to hear that you said that you yeah know, I mean it, it's it's like if you you know I'm a, I, I try to exclusively buy Australian when I'm shopping for groceries, let's say, you know, so I'm sure that Mexico makes excellent garlic, but I won't buy it mm. because I want to buy Australian garlic. Right. And that's, and I, and I don't care if I'm paying 20% more or I really don't care how much more I'm paying because at the end of the day, whether it's a dollar or a dollar 50, really, do you care what it's, it's 50 cents? Right. And, but it makes a massive difference on the ground. The big challenge for me when I hear that, because it's something that really resonates with me as a consumer as well, but then I also know that, you know, beer is something that I'm passionate about to the point that I've made my life about it. And I do, you know, almost exclusively buy independent craft beer, not for any other reason apart from it's just an emotional choice for me because I I want to support um, and keep the small breweries going. Um, And it's not the same philosophical, you know, it's, it's not that, storm the rampart sort of revolutionary spirit that probably did uh, motivate me 15, 20 years ago. But then I have to keep reminding myself, well, you need to in- be willing to inconvenience yourself in the same way to go to an independent grocer or a food you know, or a weekend market and avoid the convenience of the big two when you know correct yeah it, it, it's yeah. a lot of work being a, 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 a um, considered consumer. Well that's that's right and one of my kind of gripes about um, the on-prem market is that, you know, we've got this perennial um, debate about tap contracts and mm. the big boys owning taps. And I'm fully in the camp of believing that that is uh, uh, you know, unfair competition, uh, using market power um, unfairly, 
right? And it's an unfair marketplace. However, if you had consumers walking in to a pub, like what I always do is when I walk into a pub and I'm in a place that I don't know, doesn't matter what country I'm in, I say, what's your most local beer? I don't care what it is. Mm. I want to drink the most local beer. What? So which breweries do you have on that are local within five, 10 kilometers? Yep. Depends on, on where you are, obviously. Um, and if, if consumers in Australia were willing to do that, we would not need tap contracts would be a thing of the past because, because essentially people would walk in and go, I don't want to buy the garlic from Mexico. I want to buy the garlic from Australia, right? I want to buy local beer. Um, instead, what happens is that the publican goes, oh, um, I've got two is new. That's made in Lidcombe, right? <laughs> um, that's about five or six kilometers away, uh, you know, and basically uh, many publicans in old style pubs are like, well, I've got what I've got. If you don't like it, get fucked, mm. you know? Um, and unfortunately, Australian consumers go, oh, okay, I guess I'll just take what you're giving me. Mm. Um, now, if you opened a pub, a new bar in Portland, Oregon, and you didn't have all of, you didn't have 20 taps of independent beer, you'd get a rock through the window, right? So that's a whole different level of militance of, of, of supporting independence that um, I just don't think is in the Australian psyche, really. Um, it's kind of like, oh, I'll take what you give me. So that's, that's a, a challenge that really the IBA, it's the IBA's job. Uh, what's the whole industry's job? But, you know, the industry working together under the IBA has to change that to, so that people understand that that little independent logo is an important thing. It's an important criteria when you're shopping. And if you don't see that independent logo, you know, if I don't see Australian made garlic when I go to Woolies, I don't buy it. I don't buy the, the other. Do you, where you don't have a choice, use ex- as, as a brewer exclusively, you know, Australian malt and Australian hops or, you know, that, I guess that's the other the, the other question is you know do you try and shape your styles based on what you can use from local ingredients or do you um, shape the consumer market? Um, yeah, look, we, we certainly we certainly try to. I I I think oh, probably ninety five to ninety eight percent of our malt would be Australian. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's only the spec malts that we're looking for a very particular flavor profile yeah. that the Australian maltsters don't do or don't do well, that we, we would be bringing in that. Um, hops, hops are a little bit different, right? Because there's a lot of terroir involved in hops and, you know, Australian cascade is not the same as uh, us cascade or New Zealand cascade. So it's a little bit, mm, if you want to, you know, if you want to, we don't, we don't make mosaic in Australia, right? If you want a beer that has that flavor profile, um, then you've got to, you know, I guess if you're cooking a meal and you and you want saffron, well, you know, you get Spanish saffron because it's the best, right? Yep. And it has it has a certain flavor profile, and you know, it's a it's a relatively small part of the entire uh, entire process. Mm. All our all our water is Australian. That's ninety five percent of beer. So there you go. And just uh, talking about, you know, again, going back almost 10 years, 
you would have been brewing, you know, some of the styles that you launched on were some of the craft beer staples, but I look at the beers that Wayward's sending me these days and some of those beers and styles weren't even conceived of back then. How much has the market changed, the consumer market and consumer demand changed for different beer styles? Yeah, blue beers. Um, who knew that was a, a potential thing? Well, that, that was your 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 sports uh, beer. The, yeah, uh, yeah, that was that was sour aid. That was done for Gabs. So that you know, Gabs beer. We all get a little pass for doing Gabs beers. Because, absolutely. Uh, oh, yeah. No. Yeah, yeah. But um, I actually really like that beer. It's really, uh, it's really quite drinkable, and um, and you know, I wouldn't be surprised if it sees. Uh, sees a bit of a comeback but it actually um, gets my tip for marketing of the year as well because <laughs> particularly you know within the confines of gabs um yeah. I, you know, I wonder whether ABAC would have something to say if it was done more widely but within gabs yeah. it was brilliant because i was trying to work out oh I, I couldn't quite work out what it was and I had to go really go looking for the wayward uh, seal yeah yeah no um it, i think uniqueness stands out away at uh, gabs and um you know people walking around with a blue beer really got people's attention and and so that was that was um that was fun so we kind of have this um three or four i guess if you include salt seltzer product strategy right so we've got our core beers which we really focus on drinkability that it's that there's a an indie beer for everybody kind of um, attitude um, you know we want we want to stay true to the wayward way which is kind of trying to introduce a little twist but at the same time make it make it a beer that you could buy a, a slab of and drink the whole thing um, you know it's not not beers you get bored of mm. not beers that are challenging and that's our core range um, the seasonal or the, the limited releases, let's call them not seasonals, because we do them monthly. The whole strategy there is just to keep things interesting. So it's beers that you probably wouldn't sell all year all year round, but beers that turn us on, um, the brewers that the brewers really love to brew, and um, and just keeps it exciting, right? Keeps something new. Um, so there's almost like a virtual sixth beer in the in the core range that's a, a a limited release that comes out every month, and that's you know sometimes it's a blue beer, sometimes it's a black beer, sometimes it's a, a you know we're doing um, I'm really excited about our um, our next release, which is going to be going back to an old style of IPA. You know everybody's doing cloudy and hazy IPAs and juicy IPAs. Well, what about super piney, you know, West Coast um, IPAs, super bright, really, really quite dry, um, quite bitter. You know, I, I love that that throwback kind of IPA style, but it's probably not going to be something that, that you do 12 months of the year. Third tier of our strategy is our Discovery Series, which is all, it's like our limited releases or our barrel releases. So... Mm-hmm. As brewers, that's what um, you know. Barrel aging is is it's, if I could put that as a style, is and sour beers and um, aged beers is probably the thing that I get most excited about in terms of um, actually creating a beer. Mm. So that's stuff that's never going to um, sell in much volume, but 
the margin is an offset, right? Because it's a it's a higher ABV beer or higher cost beer. Um, and I guess that's just trying to one be something that we really love doing ourselves. And I don't know. I guess there's um I guess there's a, a credibility. I don't know. It's one of those. One of those things, some of my favorite beers in the whole world are in that style. And uh, I guess from an aspirational standpoint, we all want to be, um, want to have breweries that are thought of in those, in those uh, kind of um, groups of, groups of breweries. Mm. It's an interesting strategy, the outline. Um, I, I guess the, when you, when you go back to some of the beers that we're consuming now that didn't exist, you know, 10 years ago, do you think that they're styles that will have longevity or that they're just satisfying the curiosity of the moment for, you know, highly, you know, attention deprived beer drinkers? Um, or do you, th- do you see any that will have, you know, some longevity to them? And secondly, how hard is it from a business to constantly change and evolve your um, lineup um, to try and cater to those, uh, you know, the, the, the whims of a consumer? Yeah. Oh, for sure. I think uh, blue fruited gosas are going to be uh, going to take over from from uh, hazy IPAs. It's going to be the next trend. <laughs> Everybody's going to be releasing one. Um, so some of the new styles. So I mean, when you talk about new styles, um, I think we're all trying to find you know the next thing for sure, right? Um, you know, people. There was a there was a, a year there where Brute IPAs were a thing. Um, hazy seemed to be sticking around, primarily, I think, because any style that's really, really drinkable has a chance of, of longevity, right? It's got to be applicable and and accessible by the by majority of people. Anything that's so oddball is uh is probably never going to become a dominant style and have have a lot of longevity when you say the majority of people you're talking about the majority of beer of craft like having said that we won't use craft anymore you know that that sort of but that craft beer drinker um or the beer market more broadly because i still get the feeling that the beer market more broadly is a completely different beast to that you know idiosyncratic craft beer drinker Mm. well we're doing some research at the IBA now on on really what's the next challenge for independent beer, right? So because ultimately what we've got to do is is we've been living in this. Uh, if you know about the um, the product uh, adoption curve, where you have innovators, mm. early adopters, early majority, late majority, um, laggards, uh, we're moving up that adoption curve. So we started out with the innovators right yep. who are the home brewers and the real beer geeks that just you know have a thousand check-ins on untapped and you know they're the they're the people that are the that know everything about beer then you've got the um early adopters who you know somebody gives them a, a an accessible pale ale like a you know a pacific ale and they go oh well it's different uh, you know it's, mm-hmm. it's hoppier i like this you know it's fruitier it's got it's got some character to it it's got some flavor, right? Um, those are the people that are willing to get co-opted into this whole world of independent, but aren't necessarily, you know, they might not have, they might not be on Untapped. 
right? Now we're moving into the early majority. That's the next phase. And the early majority are people who, um, you know, maybe it's somebody who um, has a good job, has a bit of disposable income, and you know what? They like buying Asahi because um, Japanese beer must be good because Japanese things are good, right? And and they might not even like the taste or they might not even really like that. They're just buying it because it's delivering something to them that that two is new doesn't, right? Um, and and those that early majority are the ones that we need to convert over to independent, right? We need to convince people that independent beer is every bit as good or every bit as cool as uh, a premium imported beer. It's the same price. Um, it's just delivering something different. Mm-hmm. So we need to understand that consumer's mindset. And that consumer it doesn't care where uh, the hops were grown or that there's 14 kind of varieties of hops or yep. that it was done using a decoction mash. Or, you know, it's, they don't care about that. What they care about is they do care about uh, provenance and independence, right? So that's one thing where you you know you talk to somebody who um, who's in that marketplace and they might go, you know, I don't want, I don't necessarily want a big hoppy pale ale. Um, I want something that tastes clean and and tastes well brewed um, and isn't too challenging to me and delivers delivers those other aspects of what I'm looking for in terms of um, what, what, what other my buying criteria. So we're, we're doing a big research study. Um, we just got some uh, funding to do that. Um, we'll leave that for another podcast to talk about that. Cause it's pretty, pretty, mm. it's pretty exciting what we're going to do. And we're going to delve into the, into the minds of the consumer and figure out what are the levers that we need to pull to convince people to do that. And then we need to, get a consumer marketing campaign um up and running to target that so that's that's pretty exciting stuff that i'm and how about wayward uh you, you teased at the beginning that you you're looking at expanding so things are obviously going quite well for you COVID and all um that you, yeah. you, you you're looking at expanding a new brewery dare i uh we, we're, we're not going to um so the camper down we, we so last year when we were approaching about a million liters um we said, oh, we're running out of space, so we need to um, figure out what we're going to do here. So we we just we looked at some other spaces, creating a new, building a brand new brewery, which would have involved, you know, raising massive amounts of money. Probably would have had to raise fifteen or twenty million dollars to do that. We had one that sort of um, didn't. It wasn't the right deal for us and the right location for us. So we kind of made the call that we were going to just expand Camperdown. So we undertook pretty massive um, reorganization. We took another unit. So now we have every unit on the laneway. <laughs> Started out with two and now we've got, <laughs> got all six. Um, and then uh, we put in a new packaging line. We um, moved our brew house. We reorganized our cellar, reorganized our bright cellar. So we're now to the, we just finished installing tanks that'll allow us to brew up to 2 million, maybe 2.5, depending on how much seltzer we do. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, so we're, we're in Camperdown for the duration, I think. 
um, if we hit if we hit two and a half, you know, our objective is that we want to hit this two to two and a half million liters in the next uh, 18 to 24 months. And um, if we do that, then we have a another big decision to make. But at that point, you know, Wayward, um, Wayward will be a, a profitable business by then. Um, and you know, we're implementing um, staff uh, equity. So we're transitioning Wayward to a, 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 an employee owned business. And um, yeah, that, that's, that's sort of, that's my horizon. And then if we achieve that, then I'll start um, taking a half a step back and pushing some of the, some of the staff into, into the main leadership positions. We might have to uh, come back and check in on you once some of those things are a little bit more advanced because they sound uh, they'd be well worth digging into a little bit more deeply. Yeah, the the staff equity thing has been a journey for us, and um, but it's something that we're pretty keen on, pretty committed to. One thing that I uh, and I'm conscious of the time, but one thing I can't let you uh, sort of away with now that seeing you've raised it is seltzer. Tell us how how has the seltzer worked out for you? Uh, it was a bit of a novelty when you guys brought it out. Um, mm. Are you pleased you did? Is Are you seeing growth and do you think it'll be around for a, a, a couple of years or that it might just be a bit of a flash in the pan? I don't think it's a flash in the pan. It's it's pretty accessible. At the end of the day, you know, coming back to this drinkability, right, it's super drinkable and it's um, and it's it's tying into another th- uh, thread that I'm pretty passionate about that and that's, um, healthy, healthy consumption. You know, I live a, I live a low carb, um, lifestyle myself. So having, having an option that's low carb, no sugar, um, no additives, all, you know, all natural is, is pretty important. To say seltzer is that, is that automatically saying that beer isn't those things that beer isn't healthy? Um, when you couch it in those terms? Uh, look, beers definitely got higher carbohydrate mm. than than seltzer, right? Seltzer is brutally low carbohydrate. The, the the argument has always been, you know, there were pubs that would sort of give you a um, Jats cracker or a couple of Jats crackers and say there's less carbs in a Jats cracker than there are than, than there is in this beer. And now the conversation, as we've started making seltzer, is kind of well, this is healthier, um, you know. The, the the carbs in beer is still pretty low. Is is always been the industry narrative. Uh, yeah, I think I think there's look. I'm just off the top of my head. I think it's about twelve to fifteen carbs. Don't quote me Grams, on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But per, per uh, for you know one standard drink, which is roughly in line with wine. Whereas seltzer is really one carb or two carbs, right? But how many carbs is bad for you? Oh, yeah. Before because if, if we're going to bandy around terms like um, healthy. Um, mm. It's a very relative term, you know. If, uh, if if carbs, you know, if if one slice of bread has more carbs than two or three beers, and I don't know what what it is. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't eat bread either. So there no, you go. No, but but that, <laughs> and that's the thing. So if you're avoiding carbs, that's one thing. But you know, it, again, it, it's I've always worried um, with low carb beers, for example, that it was a dangerous thing to position them as healthy because it all, almost you know without a big asterisk above it saying it's healthy if you are pursuing a low carb diet as mm-hmm. opposed to just saying it's healthy because then that well, we don't we i mean we don't say it's healthy i don't think you can 
um, say uh, alcohol is healthy. You know, there's there's lots of research on good things in red wine and actually good things in beer that that, that are um, pretty good on a micronutrient basis. But um, I don't think that's what low carb is trying to do. Low carb, or sorry, what seltzers are trying to. We kind of got off on a little bit of a tangent here because mm. I, I we market um, the seltzer on the basis um, that it is low, low or no sugar, yep. low carbohydrate, low calorie, right? And then people make their own decision as mm. to whether that's that's the track that they're on. If they are looking for an option that's lower in carbohydrate, lower in sugar, and lower in calories, then seltzer is a reasonable option yep right so and i think just like there's um you know there's a move towards many people are wanting very low alcohol or no alcohol right that's another um aspect of it that people are looking at but there's there's a big part of the marketplace that's not necessarily anti-alcohol but mm. um wants to control their carbohydrate and their calorie intake so that's it and it's a very convenient package to do that i mean you could always put a nip of gin and in, in some um, soda water and that's pretty cold, low carbohydrate as well mm. but from a convenience standpoint just um grabbing a four pack or a 16 pack and going down to the park is um is pretty convenient so to answer the original question, I think that that trend that um, people looking for healthier options, I won't say it's healthy, I'll say it's maybe <laughs> healthier, uh, is here to stay for sure. People are and but and, again, uh, and I don't want I don't want to quibble quibble, but but again, that's where I said the asterisk has to be because even when you say healthier than beer, it's healthier on only one very very narrow aspect of. Beer. And if, as soon as you say healthier, it makes beer healthier than what? Healthier than what? Right? Healthier, it, it, yeah, healthier than beer. Um, and uh, same issue. We're, we're seeing the um, ultra low alcohol beers marketed the same way. Well, these are healthier because they don't have alcohol. But then, given that you're using the metric of carbs, ultra low alcohol beers have significantly more carbs than mm. regular beer. Mm. And that's what you're looking for. I mean, it's it's. But it, that's it, where it, the it, the terminology is. If you're uh, if you don't like drinking alcohol, or you don't want to, or you for religious reasons, mm. then um, you don't drink alcohol. I mean, there's there's um, there's great beer options or great non-alcoholic options out there that mean that um, you know that these because these drinks become at the end of the day these drinks are are social. They're they're used in social contexts, mm, right? Exactly. So, yep. um, if somebody wants to um, stand there and not get questioned, oh, why aren't you drinking? And they're drinking a non-alcoholic beer. Well, it looks like they're drinking a beer, mm. right? And and I know from speaking to some people that that's a thing, right? They yep. they want to be enjoying a beer, but not necessarily drinking oh, and, and drinking it wasn't alcohol. yeah so i didn't want us to sort of get on the whole zero alcohol but it's okay. the, the marketing um you know shouldn't we just stop at saying well this is a low carb that seltzer is low carb and that alcohol that these low alcohol beers low alcohol rather than then but we don't we don't say that we don't say they're healthier i mean you can't say that be that uh alcoholic beverages have health benefits so we don't say 
Uh, I'm, I'm saying, yeah. I say I drink it because I think it's a healthier option, but mm. way or it doesn't, um, you know, market um, seltzer as this is healthier or mm. healthy for you. Okay. So I think yep. it, we, we put the, we put the numbers on there and people yep. make, make their own choice. And um, I know that um, from my standpoint, I look for low carbohydrate options mm. and um, you know, not always, uh, I, I still love my beers. But uh, it's just one of those things that it's an occasion-based. Absolutely, choice. yeah, yep, yeah. yep. Yeah. Oh no, absolutely. Like I, again, I didn't want mean to go down that rabbit hole, but uh, you know, even when you say that we don't say that they're healthy, <laughs> both times we were sort of talking about it, you summarized the, the the product by using firstly the word healthy and then the word healthier um, rather than just stopping and saying well it's a low carb option people you know want that um, and that and, and not no criticism to you a, at all but the number of media releases that we get there is just this marketing there seems this marketing imperative to just go beyond the physical attributes and then give it a qualitative element you know it's healthier for you or you know better for you and we, we do get media releases that say that that there is this thing that to my way of thinking automatically makes anything that isn't that product less healthy and it's just something that we so easily fall into the habit of um of doing which is just why i wanted to ask um whether we needed to be careful about the language that we that we use when we describe it mm. but uh look i think it's been a it's been a great decision for us mm. we're um we're expanding our range were, um, you know, the next thing I think is um, you'll see from us in the summer is limited releases. So going the same way as, as the beer market where, um, you know, bringing it new flavors on a seasonal kind of basis just to keep things interesting. Um, and we've got some other cool uh, product and packaging things in the pipeline as well. Excellent. Well, we look forward to uh, to running those on, uh, on on our regular new beers section. But, yeah. uh, mate, I, I just sort of suddenly realised what the time was and uh, having tried to wind it up <laughs> with one last question, we've uh, gone down a whole other rabbit hole. Peter Phillip, yeah. thank you very much. Uh, great chat. Looking forward to seeing all of the news that sounds like it's going to be dropping, uh, you know, over a busy summer for you uh, and uh, covering it. And thank you very much for joining us for this conversation about beer and brewing. Yeah, no, no problem, Matt. It's been, uh, been great having a chat. And that was Peter Philp from Wayward Brewing with what I think might have been the quote of the podcasting year so far that I think was, there's an independent beer for everyone, not necessarily a craft beer for everyone, which uh, maybe it's selective bias, but we live in a post-craft beer world, as I say. But I thank Peter for his insights and his uh, openness and a great conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Radio Brews News is proudly presented by Cry Malt. With over 25 years in the field, Cry Malt is dedicated to providing the finest brewing ingredients to help brewers create the foundations of a truly excellent beer. They are your premium brewing partner and they are our premium partner in premium beer conversations, just like this one. <laughs>